Well, this is really exciting. Our first ever episode swap. Whoop, whoop. Welcome to the first episode swap of Surviving Society. We are really excited to be hosting an episode of Who Do We Think We Are? which is hosted and produced by Professor Mikola Benson. Who Do We Think We Are? is all about conversations we need to be having about citizenship today. Mikola and her guests debunk taken for granted understandings of Britishness and belonging and consider the long histories of citizenship and migrations and shift misunderstandings of contemporary issues from Brexit to the Windrush deportation scandal. This episode that we're hosting today is all about citizenship and I'm not going to lie to you but this episode really blew my mind like it really brings brings the fore and hones in on how important podcasts like Who Do We Think We Are actually are because it gives you the history and the contemporary in relation to matters that are so urgent and happening right now. And I just think it made me obviously angry hearing about the madness of citizenship, but also like, what can we do? Like a lot of those questions. In the current context with the deportation or the offshore into Rwanda, Rwanda yeah. and it kind of touches on the deeper histories of that and trying to get people to understand the differences between an immigrant and a asylum seeker and a refugee. Mm. These are different terms, you know, and in this current debate, they kind of get conflated I like how much things have changed over time. Like you'll hear on the episode, like different issues with regards to birthright citizenship, different issues with regards to like where you're born, where your parents are born, citizenship changing, which means your status changing. Like all this stuff is such a madness. And I think one of the things I got from the episode is like the question of well, why did we do this? Mm. Why why is being why is being British being so kind of defended in such a way? Mm. And I think that one of the things that um, who do we think we are really makes us think about or makes me think about in particular is I think the why we do this tea is that the nature of Britishness or what it means to be British is always changing and it's changing in the context of global capitalism, in the context of empire, in the context of who's disposable, in the context of who's dispensable, in the context of money, the context of wealth, like all these things, like we're in the belly of the beast, we're in the belly of empire, we're in Britain and who belongs in Britain changes all the time because Britain changes, the powers change. Mm -hmm. Um, The consistency is that there's always people that going to be scapegoated i guess mm-hmm. yeah the history shows that it's always changing and it could be tomorrow you could be the in group today and the out group tomorrow mm, definitely and of course it's racialized as well this is a brilliant episode it's definitely different to the type of episode that we usually do on surviving society it's definitely different from the episodes that we do on surviving society because it's less about conversation well it's there is conversation in there but it's very much details the facts through and through and throughout um and i think that these this is the type of podcast that we need alongside of kind of your more, more narrative um, episodes as well so it is our absolute pleasure and privilege to host this episode of who do we think we are welcome to who do we think we are a podcast exploring some of the lesser known stories of british citizenship i'm michaela benson a sociologist specializing in citizenship migration and belonging and your host join me over the course of the series as I debunk some of the taken-for-granted understandings of citizenship and examine how this changes our understandings of some of the most pressing issues of our times. I mean, where is this incredible sense of British fair play? There should not be no levels of being British. You are either are or you're either not. This just makes no sense. 
just because my British BOTC father did not marry my foreign born mother, I am made to feel unwelcome and less than? I think not. That was Trent Lamont Miller talking about what it feels like to be denied the right to British citizenship just because his father was not married to his mother at the time of his birth. With Dave Varney, he set up the British Overseas Territory Citizens Campaign. They've been pressuring the UK government to correct the historic injustice that has meant that the children born overseas and outside of marriage to British Overseas Territory citizens were not entitled to the nationality status of their parents. Notably, this is a population that is almost exclusively made up of people of colour. We'll be hearing more from him and Dave later in the episode. But first, I want to welcome you back to season two of Who Do We Think We Are? We took quite a break over the past few months, which gave us the opportunity to rest and to reflect on where we got to and what we wanted to do going forwards. You may have spotted that we've introduced a companion series called Beyond the Headlines. I'm absolutely thrilled to be hosting this with my friend and colleague, Dr. Ele Siria, who works with me in the Department of Sociology at Lancaster University. And this companion series is exactly what it says on the tin. We dissect some of the major news headlines about migration today in conversation with our guests. In our first episode, released on the 13th of May 2022, we took a deep dive into the headlines about Ukrainian refugees with Dr Yvonne Sue. We're releasing episodes of Beyond the Headlines monthly, And if you follow Who Do We Think We Are on your preferred podcasting app, these will show up in your feed too. We also took the decision to slow down our more narrative episodes so that they only come out once a month. They really do take quite some time to produce, so we wanted to give ourselves a bit of breathing space. But the good news is we've got episodes in the works on how the development of citizenship is related to global social inequalities, protest and resistance, and European citizenship. We've also made a little change to the format of Back to the Archive. Now, I know that George has some fans out there, and I wanted to take the opportunity to give him a little more room in these episodes to elaborate on the material that he uncovers in the archives. And that brings us back to this episode. You'll remember that at the end of season one, I got a bit preoccupied with the Nationality and Borders Bill. We talked about Clause 9 and citizenship deprivation, and how the descendants of the Chagos Islanders were denied the right to citizenship. On the 28th of April 2022, After significant ping-ponging between the House of Lords and the House of Commons in the UK, the Nationality and Borders Bill was granted royal assent. This means that its contents moved from being a proposal to being primary legislation as the Nationality and Borders Act. Today's episode is devoted entirely to that act. And because it's a big piece of legislation, this is a big episode. And I've brought in several guests 
to help me examine some of the changes it introduces to UK legislation. First up, Dave Varney joins Trent and I to talk more about the campaign that led to new provisions being introduced into the UK's nationality legislation to allow the children born overseas to unmarried British parents to register as British citizens. I've got an explainer that briefly introduces the Nationality and Borders Bill. George goes back into the archive to uncover how Margaret Thatcher responded behind the scenes to the calls for the UK to resettle Vietnamese refugees in the 1970s. And I speak with Fiza Qureshi, CEO of Migrant Rights Network, about her concerns about the new act, how the foundations for this have been a long time in the making, and how this makes migrants and refugees even more vulnerable in British society today. Before I hand the mic over to Trent and Dave, I just wanted to give you a bit of a reminder of the history that led to the development of British Overseas Territories citizenship. We discussed this in detail in Season 1, Episode 10, as part of the backstory to the British Indian Oceans Territories citizenship campaign. So here I'm just going to go over the headlines again. The British Nationality Act of 1981 introduced the distinction between British citizens who had the right to abode in the UK and British dependent territory citizens who did not have this right. And what this meant is that those British dependent territory citizens who wanted to live and work in the UK had to apply for the right to reside in the UK. In other words, they had to go through immigration control to live and settle in the UK. But then in 2002, with the passing of a new act, the British Overseas Territories Act, those with British Dependent Territories citizenship status were reclassified as British Overseas Territory citizens. And those holding this new status were entitled to register as full British citizens with the right to live in the UK. But their children, specifically those born overseas and outside marriage, did not get this right. Let's hear a little bit more from Dave about how Trent's experiences and the issues that it highlighted led to the British Overseas Territories Citizenship Campaign. The original focus of the campaign was uh, on the case of a child born overseas who wanted British nationality, who were not married to their non-British mothers, who were eligible to claim British nationality before 1st of July 2006. So this is a very personal story and it is really about Trent's quest for recognition as a British overseas territory citizen and also a British citizenship. I wondered if you could just reflect a little bit more here. And I mean, this is where it gets a bit tricky, isn't it? Because what you're talking about is um, not people who had British citizenship, but people who held other statuses in British legislation that most people are not very knowledgeable of. So, for example, British Overseas Territory citizenship. Yes, that's right. Uh, Registration provisions were introduced for people born to unmarried British citizen fathers before 1st of July 2006 to be registered as citizens by through Section 65 of the Immigration Act 2014. This provided for a person to register as a British citizen 
if they would have acquired that status automatically under the British Nationality Act 1981, uh, had their British mainland father been married to the mother of the child. Section 65 was introduced at a very late stage in the debates that led to the Immigration Act. And it was recognized that each overseas territory you know, has its own immigration laws, and to create a route for people to become British overseas territory citizens, which could give them a right of abode in, a, in that territory, would require consultation with governors uh, of the territories and the governments of each territory, which was not possible uh, before the introduction of the Act. Uh, corresponding provisions were therefore not included to include British overseas territory citizenship. The story behind your campaign is very personal for the two of you. So maybe, Trent, you can start by telling me a little bit more about it. Well, my father was born in 1942 in the British Overseas Territory of the Montserrat. I was born out of wedlock in New York in 1969 and had an American mother. And in 2009, I decided to explore applying for British citizenship through my unmarried father. After approaching the home office, I was told in no uncertain terms, no. The reason was given because British nationality law does not permit an unmarried BOTC father to pass down his citizenship down to a child born before the 1st of July, 2006. And I discovered that my half-siblings born to our father, but to a different mother, would have no problem being BOTC as their parents were married. I'm the one left out in the cold, all because my parents did not, could not marry. This is an unequal and unfair situation in my standards. I realized it was more than just about Trent. It was about other children too, other children of black and brown children of British overseas territories descent who were shut out basically. And um, we soon realized that it wasn't just children born to British Overseas Territories fathers. It was also, you know, before 1983, January 1st, uh, women couldn't pass British nationality to children born outside UK colonies. And provisions to allow for children born before 1983 to British citizens' mothers to be registered as British citizens was also introduced in the Nationality Immigration Asylum Act 2002. But again, those provisions were not extended to black and brown BOTC mothers. And this was because the registration provisions uh, were introduced to extend the concession announced in 1979 for the registration of children uh, of UK-born mothers. The aim in 2002 was to cover those who would have been registered as children on that basis and, and that concession, but had not been applied in time. So the criteria introduced that the person, um, you know, if women could have passed on citizenship at that time, would have become a citizen of the UK in colonies and acquired the right of abode in the UK, aimed to cover all those who had maternal connections to the UK. The registration criteria uh, were extended in legislation in 2009, but as this was introduced as an unexpected Lord's Amendment, there really was no time to consult with the BOT governments about the implications of doing something like this for BOTCs, which would have possibly had uh, an impact on territory migration. That kind of account, um, Dave, is, you know, you've wonderfully explained it in lots of ways, but 
I mean, there's so many things about it that I've been learning as I've been doing this series around that just kind of leave me like mouth wide open. Like, you know, before 1983, women couldn't pass on their, their British nationality to children born outside the UK. I mean, this is like within this is within my lifetime, I'm proud yeah, to say. Absolutely. But, um, absolutely. Um, um, and, you know, and, and also like all of those weird things where it, it looks to me like the phrasing is obviously very deliberate legally, but the consequences of that phrasing um, exclude people in ways that sometimes is anticipated, sometimes isn't. And so you end up with this real mess, essentially, of all sorts of things. And at the moment, you've been fighting to correct, you know, a mess that was years in the making, really, You're kind of unpacking and unpicking a whole load of things. Um, you know, it, it kind of opened up a Pandora's box because what's really clear about this is that nationality, law and immigration are often merged into one basket by the Home Office. And really, in their own right, they need to be treated as individual subjects and have separate treatments, uh, even though immigration can lead to citizenship. But nationality law is it, it stands on its own. And it seems to be the case that Depending on the government in power at the time, law, nationality laws are made, immigration laws are made, things are taken in, things are put out, things are changed. So over the, over the years, it's really become quite a mishmash of things which are so unfair and unequal that at least our attempt to try and do our bit to correct this has, you know, hopefully been successful. Yeah, definitely. I think you really captured that sense of this kind of patchworking together of different things and kind of like putting plasters over holes in some respect um, because of the mess that's been made earlier. But I wondered if you wanted to give a little bit of a pricey of, to your mind, what the achievements were of this and, and the kind of inspiration that's kind of driven you on from that. In the beginning, it was hard to get anyone in power to even take notice of our campaign. That's true. You know, we we flagged it many times up to the Home Office, the MPs. And, you know, at the beginning, there was no interest. It was very frustrating. You know, it was only until 2019 that two MPs of colour in Parliament, Bel Rabirawadi and Kim Johnson, noticed and offered their support. We've worked with the late Lord Eric Avery, and we have very strong support from Baroness Ruth Lister. We've had strong connections and support from the UK Overseas Territories Association, who are the representatives of the different territories governments in London, Janice Panton and Kimberly Durant. And, you know, the UK OTA, you know, really got the issue. They saw it and they saw the discrimination that was still there against British overseas territories, uh, people of descent, and they used every opportunity to raise it with, you know, their own territories and the UK government, and they went to bat for us. And, um, you know, I remember right at the start of the campaign, we had some advice from um, Adrian Berry, the well-known nationality barrister, and he helped us greatly by giving us advice at the beginning. And eventually... People in Parliament took notice and eventually they came forward with a recognition that there were things to be corrected. It's been a really long journey, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really, really has. I mean, there's so much more to it, you know, with it being brought up in the uh, Joint Committee on Human Rights, the Foreign Affairs Committee. And then, you know, in 2018, we got word from the Home Office Nationality Policy Team 
that they were going to bring forth a solution. So this is where we really are today. Yeah, that brings us right up to the present day, doesn't it? And and I understand that the amendment related to your issues, it was passed in the House of Commons, wasn't it? It didn't have to wait till it got to the House of Lords. That's right. There was no um, no objections and it got to the Lords and there was no objections for those particular few clauses at the beginning. But then they went and added more complicated clauses like Clause 9 at the end of it, which really has caused a lot of problems and a lot of unfairness. It seems like you're correcting injustices with one hand and slamming in further injustices with the other hand. So it's not very logical to me. You know, Trent, I want to come back to you because it must really have been quite incredulous to you that we're in 2021 and you're still in this situation where you're not entitled to this status, that because you were born out of wedlock, you weren't entitled to your father's status. I mean, that just must be, that is quite jaw-dropping in lots of ways. Indeed. Um, in 1960, my father moved from Antigua to live and work in the UK without restriction. Zero. Zilch. Nada. He was part of the latter flow of the Windrush people, and he worked hard and paid his taxes. And he also remained in the UK until 1968, and then he to study in the USA in the early 1970s. He tried to return to the UK but found he, that the nationality and immigration laws had changed, excluding many former colony Commonwealth citizens. And they failed to recognize him as a person who already had a right of abode in the UK, effectively slamming a door in his face. He remained in the USA. All these years later, this homeland country is now shutting the door in the face of his child. How fair is that? I mean, where is this incredible sense of British fair play? There should not be no levels of being British. You are either are or you either not. This just makes no sense. Just because my British BOTC father did not marry my foreign born mother, I am made to feel unwelcome and less than? I think not. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. Every child has copies of both parents. DNA, they have two sides of the family tree. For the UK government, to take a pair of scissors and cut away one part of that DNA and family tree and then say you're not valid, you're not welcome, go away, it's deeply hurtful. I think that's really, um, you know, you, you've really communicated really very clearly there, you know, the kind of the absolute fundamental inequality at the heart of this. It is. It, I do find it. I do still find it. Every time I hear it, I find it that it is unbelievable. It's astounding, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely astounding. You know, post-colony, post-Commonwealth, or in the Commonwealth situation. And there is so much that the average person just doesn't get to understand. Uh, they're not aware of the discriminations. They're not aware of the inequalities. They're not aware of the unfairness. And, you know, that sort of discrimination is a spillover from the days of colonialism. And it has, you know, this has undertones of the Windrush fiasco running all the way through it. You're listening to Who Do We Think We Are? A podcast all about British citizenship, hosted by me, Mikola Benson. If you like what you've heard and you want to hear more, 
You can subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. The provisions included in the Nationality and Borders Bill to address this historic injustice passed unopposed. And at the 11th hour, amendments were introduced to the bill, which meant that similar provisions could be put in place so that the descendants of the Chagos Islanders were entitled to register as British citizens. And I know that Rosie and Jerome, who we spoke to in episode 10 about the British Indian Ocean's Territories Citizens Platform, were delighted with this news. But it's fair to say that this is a bittersweet story. These measures to address historic injustices, injustices that I might add that almost exclusively impacted on people of colour, are sweeteners in the context of a raft of legislative changes that will introduce increasingly exclusionary measures aimed at controlling who can come to the UK and on what terms. And here's my explainer. It's really more of a recap, actually. The Nationality and Borders Act is wide-ranging in its scope. It will introduce changes to nationality and asylum legislation and immigration control, among other things. And you might be asking, what do these things hold in common? Now, in terms of its scope, we've seen this before. It resembles other acts that we've discussed on Who Do We Think We Are, including the Nationality, Immigration and Asylum Act of 2002 and the British Nationality Act of 1981. It's telling that such seemingly wide-ranging issues are so frequently considered alongside one another. And here I'm reminding of Raiko Karatani's argument that British citizenship is best understood as a form of immigration status. I'll put a link to her article in the episode notes. Now, before we hear from Fizzer, let's head back into the archive with George. I couldn't help but notice that although today's piece from the archive puts us in another time and another place, the story sounds eerily familiar. It's over to George to hear more. So, Michaela, I'm going to talk about a Guardian article from the 30th of December 2009, which gives some of the backstory to Britain's response in respect to those fleeing Vietnam after the fall of Sagan in April 1975. Now, the article draws on a Downing Street paper released by the National Archives, which, however, I was not able to locate. So... The report is titled, Margaret Thatcher Reluctant to Give Boat People Refuge in Britain. And it reads, Margaret Thatcher initially refused to give 10,000 Vietnamese boat people refuge in Britain, privately warning her ministers that there would be riots on the streets if they were given council housing. Now, I think that it's important here that we have a bit of a backstory to what's going on. So after the fall of Saigon, we see lots of people trying to leave Vietnam in small boats and crossing the South China Sea. And by July 1979, 60,000 people were in refugee camps in Hong Kong. And 
it's important to remember that it's 1979. So we're, we're like 18 years before the handover. So before Hong Kong stops being a British colony. So they're arriving on British soil and they were continuing to arrive at a really high rate. Now, of course, because of migration policy, which stopped people entering the UK at the time, they're effectively stuck there. And there are negotiations going on, not just involving Britain, but also involving some of the other European states, Australia, New Zealand, about what the solution was to this, how to resettle these people. So, so this is the conversation, the broader international conversation that was going on at this point in time. But George, can you just zone in a little bit on what Margaret Thatcher was thinking about this? Because this is really what the article shows. It kind of gives a behind the scenes um, revelation. Yes, exactly. And I mean, the report goes on to say that Thatcher told her foreign secretary, Lord Carrington, and her home secretary, Willie Whitelow, that it was, and I quote, quite wrong that immigrants should be given council housing, whereas white citizens were not. And some other headlines from this report include that she had approached the Australian Prime Minister to buy an Indonesian or Philippine island where the refugees could resettle, basically. And that she had also suggested to Carrington and Whitelow that those who were pressing the government to help the Vietnamese boat people should be invited to accept one into their homes. And she also asked if they could not only simply be shifted from one warehouse in Hong Kong to another in the UK. Any admission of these refugees would also have to be marched by a cut in the levels of immigration. I mean, this is just so fascinating in so many ways. We see that kind of idea that actually one solution might be for Britain to kind of outsource their refugees to another part of the world. So resettle them somewhere else. And we're seeing tones of that. Um, well, it's not tones, really. It has the same overtone to it, really, to this, to this new deal that the British government has struck with Rwanda, which, of course, had a previous articulation on exactly these terms. Can we find an island where we can put these refugees, for example? And I think that we also see um, here, and this is probably a story that deserves a lot more unpacking, but originally, when these people started to arrive in Hong Kong, they were being accommodated in decommissioned ships. Um, they were setting up kind of temporary housing for themselves. And in time, the Hong Kong government, which of course was Britain at the time, were put together these camps to house them. And the last of those camps was decommissioned in 2002. So a really long time after Britain had handed Hong Kong back to China. But that gives you a sense of how long that resettlement process was in lots of ways. But I think that you've got another convergence that you want to draw out there in respect to this point about perhaps British people should give up their homes or give space within their homes to these people. I mean, yes, in the, I think we, like in the report, we also see the elaboration of a discourse around Britain's response, which shows a retreat to the logic of humanitarianism in driving decision making. So the official uh, minutes of the discussion point out that the prime minister said that on humanitarian grounds, she would much rather see the UK take in refugees than immigrants. 
And we can also see this too in the way that she framed other refugees as preferable. For example, the Guardian article reports that she had far less objection to refugees such as Rhodesians, Poles and Hungarians, since they could more easily be assimilated into British society. And now we see how a very similar thinking plays out today, right, as well, in relation to Ukraine, which you've talked about in the previous episode, actually, Michaela. So overall, I think all this seems oddly familiar in today's context. There are several parallels one could draw. And the other day I was reading how Priti Patel said that it's been obvious for decades that our asylum system needs to change. And I was thinking while I was reading this article from The Guardian, how it could be useful to consider how the policies that we see play out today have had an often hidden longer political history. I think that you're absolutely right there, George. And obviously, Ukraine is a perfect example, or the British government's response to Ukraine is a perfect example. We see this idea of the kind of homes for Ukraine being being presented as one way that the British public could help in this context. I won't go into now the controversy around that that's been kind of brewing. But simply understanding that the solutions that are being presented are nothing really new, that they have this longer history is, I think, important in trying to kind of make sense of what we're seeing unfolding in front of us in terms of the Nationality and Borders Bill. So thank you very much. Thank you. These reflections from George on the resemblance between Margaret Thatcher's behind-the-scenes responses about how the UK should manage Vietnamese refugees and recent policy announcements by Priti Patel about how the UK should manage Ukrainian refugees and, of course, the Rwanda deal, was not lost on me. Indeed, these recent responses by Priti Patel were a key theme in my conversation about the Nationality and Borders Act with Fiza Qureshi. Recorded within a few hours of this act being granted royal assent, I started our conversation by asking her what concerns Migrant Rights Network had about the Nationality and Borders Act. I kind of want to, this is hysterical laughter, but it's everything. It is everything about the Nationality and Borders Bill. Um, I think the only positive has been some of the amendments for the British territories overseas, you know, residents. But largely, it's just such an appalling bill. And I think, I think it's also a good reminder that this isn't, this has come about because we have had a number of other laws and policies that have allowed this to come into fruition, basically. It's um, the ones that were laid before around hostile environment, they were focused in on tackling illegal immigration. And then you have this bill, which again talks about tackling, quote unquote, illegal immigration. We don't use like the word illegal um, at all. But and then this feels like the nail in the coffin, really, for so many migrant refugees who are here or who want to come to the UK, who want to settle here, who want to sanctuary here, who want to make it their home. We've been quite shocked at the, yeah, the cruelty that's been displayed within this bill. And now that it's going to be law, it just, 
frankly, I just, it's more about us staying strong for those who are at the sharp end of these policies and laws and making sure that we're standing in solidarity with them. And that means taking it to the courts where we can or taking it to the streets where it's necessary. I can hear the sadness actually in your voice that this bill has passed. And and I do share that sadness um, alongside you. But I think that, as you say, it's really important to focus on how this bill has come about after a decade of the hostile environment. And actually before that, a set of measures which um, increasingly kind of made the UK, um, I would say, quite quite a hostile and insecure place for, for many people arriving in the UK. But I'd like to go into a little bit more detail about some of the major changes that the bill has suggested, which you have concerns about. From our conversation before this recording, I know that you've got some, some things to say about the criminalisation of refugees, and that's the provisions that are set out in the bill for the government to make it a criminal offence to enter the UK illegally. And again, I've got my square quotes around illegally um, there as well. Yeah. One thing I, I was reflecting on as you were speaking when you were talking about insecurity, and um, it really kind of brings home that how insecure the UK is, that it's so threatened by people coming to the UK to make this their home. That's the real sad fact of it, is that why would you feel that you need to criminalise individuals who have to arrive in the UK by these irregular means, by boats, etc. When you have no effective safe routes to come to the UK or where you have those routes and they're measly in terms of the numbers that are available to, to people or they're re- really narrow in their scope, I mean, what other, pe- what other means and ways are people going to have to resort to apart from getting on a boat or, you know, entering the UK however they can? I think what for us is just this approach that it's, sorting people out on how they've arrived in the UK. Yeah, you've got this two-tier approach now. We're also really worried about how the criminalising aspect, which will, which may mean that some individuals end up in our prison system. And that has now been extended from six months to four years, which is just heinous in terms of a, a sentence for anyone. Um, and there shouldn't be any sentence for having to arrive to the UK, you know, through irregular means. But what does it also mean for their future immigration status? So if they do get, um, you know, on release or, you know, uh, they are um, kind of accepted as a refugee, what does that mean for their future status and immigration status? Because everything's focused in around not conducive to the public good or this good character requirement, which actually has elements in it around um, not having a, you know, you're at risk of deportation as a foreign national offender if you have a criminal sentence of over 12 months. It's incredibly worrying how we've got to this point where we've had this, you know, a kind of increasing element of criminalizing, criminalization of migration. That narrative around illegality that seems to have crept into the language of politicians over the last couple of years, actually, well, perhaps decade even, we've slowly seen that um, come in, the kind of illegality of migration to the UK through particular routes, seems to now be being made tangible, these measures which will allow the government to prosecute people basically on the, on the grounds by which they arrive in the UK. 
Um, so, so it's almost like they kind of laid the foundations for people to kind of say, OK, well, this is all right, because already they're illegal. Yeah, uh, no, you're absolutely right. The language of illegality is being used so cleverly. So you've got the media using it and, re- and, and, and in- including some of the more liberal press, they still use the language of illegal and pitting good versus bad migrants. Like I said, the, the hostile environment policies where you really had this ramping up around the language of illegal immigration, and not to say it's not been there before, but there just seemed to be a, a bigger emphasis on it. And then you had the go home vans and, you know, around illegal immigration. So you have had this build up, it seems, around this issue. And the fact is, it's not an issue. We don't have an issue with illegal immigration because no one is illegal. Um, and as you said, refugees cannot be illegal, but it's been very cleverly, cleverly used, um, strategically used, and it seems to have taken hold. And, you know, it's interesting. There was even language around illegal asylum seekers. It's like, well, that's an oxymoron. You can't be both. <laughs> um, and then also the language of genuine asylum seekers. There's just a ramping up of the, the criminalization of migration and, and now kind of targeted at refugees um, as well. Yeah, this has to be wholeheartedly challenged. I mean, just, you know, it, we cannot allow this to go any further and need to push back at all, at all costs. I'm, I'm just nodding along because I, I, I just agree. And I, <laughs> um, and I know that lots of people listening will also agree. The other issue that I know you've been quite vocal about at Migrant Rights Network is this um, offshoring of detention and most notably that recent announcement that the government has agreed a deal which would mean that they could deport refugees to Rwanda. Can you spell out a little bit more what you think is going on here? Yeah, so what was interesting, I think initially we thought it was just them offshoring individuals to be detained within Rwanda and now it's been uncovered, no, that's going to be their future home, even if they were successful in the refugee application, which just, uh, I don't know if I can even put it it's into just words. just mind-boggling, isn't it's, it? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of glad I don't have the words because I don't want to understand why someone would implement such a policy. But we're now persecuting people who have been persecuted. We are now going to be, again, deporting people to a country that they don't ever intend to be in, they don't want to live in, they, I mean, if they did, I would assume that they would go to Rwanda in the first place, and they wouldn't try to come to the UK. We're now outsourcing our legal and refugee responsibilities um, to another nation to kind of discharge. The government has already acknowledged that they know that this was, this is going to be challenged in the courts, then why would you go ahead with such a god-awful policy? I think also, you know, there's been um, some concerns for us around like the language of commodifying the issue. So we know that there's an extortion amount being paid for for this deal. But I don't think that's the argument we should be using. It's not about how expensive this deal is. Or I mean, if we made it cheaper, it doesn't make it any better or right. It's about our moral and ethical and legal obligations to people who arrive on our shores to give them safety and sanctuary here and to hear their cases here. I genuinely hope this never gets implemented and that the courts will actively object and challenge it. A lot of what you've been saying over the course of our conversation reminds me that 
all too often, I think the kind of public and political narrative about migration is one that kind of focuses on values, focuses on economy, rather than focusing on rights, you know, kind of basic human rights or refugee rights. And I think that the rights have kind of got lost in a lot of these provisions. I think you're right. And I and I would go so far, and this might be controversial to say that I think us as a sector also have something to consider about how we've got to a point where we aren't talking about the rights anymore. So I, I really hope that we can claw back some of that language around rights. The final issue that I know that you've been very concerned about, which is Clause 9, and that's the deprivation of citizenship without notice. And I previously spoke with um, a colleague, um, Zainab Nakvi, um, who's a legal scholar at De Montfort University. But I wanted to hear from you about how this has come about, to your mind. Mm. Deprivation, uh, we know, has been happening for, again, decades, maybe longer. Uh, we know people have been deprived, but and we know that it's targeted mainly brown, black migrants. And now we're focused in on Muslims. I think where we've got to this point where depriving people without notice is because the courts um, upheld a challenge, quite rightly, against the Home Office, where uh, an individual was deprived of their citizenship without notice or without adequate notice, I believe. And then the court upheld that and said, no, you cannot do this. So then the Home Office thought, well, we'll sneak this into the Nationality and Borders Bill as it's going through. And lo and behold, we had Clause 9. When it emerged, I think what was, what was interesting was how it became such a spotlight in the media and how new groups have formed a, a campaigning against it because suddenly everyone who's from a migrant background feels threatened uh, around this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a sad fact that we have to be campaigning on this issue of people potentially being deprived of citizenship because the problem is citizenship gives you rights and entitlements in the UK. If we didn't have that association, people might think, well, it doesn't matter if I'm not a British citizen. But the fact that it just gives you so many so, so many rights in here. And the other aspect is that challenging deprivation is really difficult. We know that they use special immigration courts, especially for national security grounds, and you can't see the evidence directly. So how can you, I can't imagine how you challenge evidence that you don't even know what it is. So when somebody is deprived of their citizenship on national security grounds, not even they can see the evidence that's being used against them. No. So if you have to go through SIAC, uh, you have to appoint a special advocate. And the special advocates are um, lawyers who are allowed to see the evidence that if it's based on national security grounds. And then they're not allowed to tell you directly what the evidence is. I mean, SIAC in itself has been a problem um, for, for a long time. And it was the Labour government that introduced this. So, you know, it's not always the existing government that is at fault, but it's they've been able to build on things that previous governments have, have, have brought in. Yeah, it's a long trajectory um, of that. And, and I guess that, you know, that it's very clear now that the government have been using this not only against people who were born overseas, but against, so people who'd naturalised as British, 
but also against people who were born British. And that's that was the big change that, that started to happen in the last decade, wasn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm thinking also about myself. I'm born British, but I have Pakistani heritage through my through my parents. They got me a national identity card. And now I'm thinking, was that a mistake? I mean, I think, it, I, I mean, even just holding a national identity, don't, I don't think holding an identity card in itself wouldn't stop me from potentially being deprived but it just might make it a little bit easier for them for the courts if i was you know ever put forward for that it's it's really kind of questioned kind of how welcome i am and how much i really belong to the uk um is this really my home you know just going back a little um, i've experienced quite a lot of racism in the 80s and the 90s you're told to go home go back to where you came from not knowing well, I, where I come from is the UK um, and it has always, you know, being born here. I've finally got to a point where I feel this is home. This is my only home and, and especially for my children as well. But it seems like there's always something else that's brought forward to make me feel that I shouldn't belong. I'm not allowed to belong and I'm not allowed to be welcome. And this just seems to be another another factor that's brought in, in through that. There seems to be, again, a, a different approach to migrants or people, you know, first, second generation, you know, third, et cetera, that we're put under a finer microscope. So if we place a foot wrong or behave in a way that's not deemed appropriate, we are immediately seen as, as someone who's deportable. We're immediately migratized and, and seen through, through that lens. I've always wondered, you know, someone like Rolf Harris, for example, has he had his citizenship revoked? Has he is he at risk of deportation, Eve, despite having a, a criminal sentence? I fear not. I, I want to know why. I want to understand why someone like that is treated differently to people of colour. So it will be again interesting to see how this aspect of the bill uh, or soon to be act will be implemented, who it targets. And I think what we need to be better at is kind of publicly sharing what is happening because I think it has been so hidden. Fizz's closing reflections really draw attention to how important it is to bear witness to the ways in which the hostile environment has been experienced by racially minoritised communities in the UK. It also signals the need for continued vigilance as the provisions introduced through the Nationality and Borders Act are implemented. I can't recommend enough the work that she and Migrant Rights Network do. They're a charity that works alongside migrants in their fight for rights and justice. And you can find out more about them on their website migrantrights.org.uk I'd also recommend checking out their fantastic Instagram feed, which includes a set of explainers that encourage people to think twice about some of the commonplace language used to describe migrants and migration. As they highlight, words matter. You can also find out more about the journey that Trent and Dave have been on with the British Overseas Territory Citizens Campaign over at botccampaign.org. And of course, I'll be dropping links to all these resources and more into the episode notes. This has been a longer than usual episode. 
my small attempt to document this latest twist in the story of British citizenship. Over the course of season one, we explored the history that laid the foundations for present-day questions of citizenship, migration and belonging. And, to my mind, this historical understanding reveals a longer backstory to the Nationality and Borders Act than we might otherwise realise. Indeed, George's discoveries in the archive regularly remind us of eerie resemblances between past and present approaches to migration and citizenship. In the months and years to come, there will be more to add to this story, which will reveal the undoubtedly long tail of the Nationality and Borders Act. We're all going to need to reflect on this, and as Fizza reminded me, solidarity is going to be crucial in challenging and combating these changes. In season two, we're going to continue this exploration of citizenship, migration and belonging. And we'll be back next month with a focus on the relationship between citizenship and global social inequalities with Professor Manuela Botka. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Who Do We Think We Are? A podcast series produced and hosted by me, Mikla Benson, as part of my British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship, Britain and its Overseas Citizens. If you like what you've heard, take a moment to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Special thanks to Emma Halton and Andrew Proctor at Art of Podcast for their production and post-production support, and to George Kalivis for the cover art and archival research. Finally, to find out more about me and my research, you can follow me on Twitter at Mikla C. Benson. See you again next time. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Survive in Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes.